Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. In case of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to this week's Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Well, it is just seven weeks since the May 21 election, and it has already been analysed in detail by ANU and other political science academics using survey data, and I'm delighted to have two of them with me today to discuss at a more granular level what motivated voters to change their minds from last time and what issues pushed them to do it. And you won't be surprised to hear that Scott Morrison's low personal integrity ratings were among the factors, but there are many more. Last week, the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods and the School of Politics and International Relations held a symposium called Realignment or Dealignment. To really get a sense of just how pivotal this election was, was it a sort of a temporary thing, an aberration, or does it mark a a change in the way uh, Australians are voting? And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss some of those issues today. I suppose in the end, we'll know that more conclusively when we see the next election. So in other words, three years down the track, will some of the things that happened here be reversed or will they be um, repeated? Will voters continue to drift away from the major parties? We know the, triple, uh, the crossbench was tripled in size, for example. So, uh, you know, that's a, a pretty significant event in Australian electoral history. Uh, we'll see whether those crossbenches uh, farewell at the next election. Will the crossbench even expand further? It's all uh, it's all open to uh, to possibilities. So, to discuss all of that, I'm joined by Professor Nicholas Biddle and Intifar Chowdhury. Professor Biddle is an economist and public policy expert, and is associate director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. And Intifar Chowdhury is a PhD candidate at ANU and her research tackles the important question of whether young people are turning away from democracy. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. Inti, I might start with you because, um, as I said, you look at this question about whether young people are turning away from democracy. I wonder, does this 
election give you any sort of answer to that question? And does it, in fact, point up that people might be, young people might be turning away, not so much from democracy, but from old politics? Yeah, um, young people in Australia are definitely not turning away from democracy. There is a high level of interest and also kind of like a different sort of engagement with Australian politics. Um, and when I say different, it's mostly young people are mostly switched off by elite directed uh, democratic processes and don't seem to favor political parties as much as their older counterparts. However, young people's politics in Australia seem to be driven and as election results suggest by particular issues that are relevant to their lives. Yeah, so in a sense, it shows that uh, young people are sort of policy-based or issues-driven, as you say, in the way they cast their votes. The way I've described that in the past is that, and it's a generalisation, I know, but but that young people tend to think in quite straight lines about these issues. They they hold values, uh, they determine what their position is on a particular thing, and 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 are less compromised by a, a sort of a plethora of other concerns that tend to uh, change the way people vote, the complexities that they bring to those equations later in life. And a party like the Greens tends to, you know, which has not been historically a party of government, tends to be able to relate very well to that constituency because it too can take quite principled positions on things, largely uh, safe in the assumption that they won't actually be controlling the budget and the treasury benches in order to uh, have to put those policies into place. So this perhaps a, a confluence there between this, this, this tendency of young people to vote on issues and the rise of the Greens in this election. Yeah, that's absolutely right, actually. So young, young voters mostly probably think about, oh, what is the issue at the front of mind and then try and, and, and look for solutions, which most of the time they don't get from major parties. And many, many polls um, suggest that young people's faith on political institutions and the major political parties has been declining and hence they're kind of finding probably perhaps refu refuge with, with these green and teal independents. All right, well, we'll come back to some of these issues in a moment. But Nick, can I get from you first what the main survey, uh, survey findings are? And, and if you could perhaps uh, just explain to Democracy Sausage, uh, the, all of us around the barbecue here, what this survey is, how it came about and what makes it different. Because as I said, we are Quite, quite a. Um, we've only just had the election, and yet we already have this rich trove of data about uh, what people thought and what what changed. You know, what influenced their their votes. Yeah, sure. So we have a long-standing survey on general social issues, ANU poll, and we usually ask about uh, in between three and three and a half thousand people a range of issues, maybe three or four times a year, a little bit more during the COVID period. Um, so our most recent one of those surveys was in April, uh, April 2022. Uh, and in addition to asking things like your experience with COVID, your vaccination status, your well-being, uh, we asked a few kind of policy questions and also voting intention. So that was kind of our pre-election survey started in the field just as just after the election was called. Uh, while uh, the campaign had just started. And then in, in May, at the end of May, just after the election result itself, uh, we then went back to the same individuals uh, and asked them a range of political questions, including who they voted for in the Senate and the House of Reps, 
who they voted for in 2019, their trust in a range of, of institutions, their views on the, on the leaders, uh, and a really important question uh, which we asked um, by linking to April survey, we were able to ask, you know, why did you change? Uh, why did you change your view from uh, April to, to May? In April, you said you're going to vote for the coalition. You ended up voting independent. Why? Or uh, you said you're going to vote Greens and you end up voting for the coalition. Why was that? Um, so we have a really rich set of data from pre- and post-election. We were able to really drill into some of the factors influencing people's votes and also a really interesting one we asked, okay, uh, how happy were you with your voting? Uh, how happy are you now with the direction of the country? So as you mentioned, we've, we've got a few papers out already. The data is available through the Australian Data Archive, so anyone can can jump online and, and download it and, and do their own analysis, and there's still heaps of analysis to come. So, and, and a key strength of this, therefore, and this makes it different from, from the sort of normal, I suppose, what we might call retail polls that people would be familiar with, the ones that bob up in the, in the, uh, the papers every you know, month or six weeks or fortnight or whatever it might be for, for, for the different um, media companies. But the difference here is that, well, we, perhaps you can explain it. These are the same people, by and large, uh, that are being uh, questioned and re-questioned. And how are they selected? Yeah, so uh, they are the same people, uh, and that's a really rich part of our, our data set. So if you did the May survey, uh, you've got about a 93.5% chance that you did the April survey. Um, so the vast majority of those who we have their actual voting, uh, we have who they intended to vote for in April and even, even before then. Uh, so these people are selected, uh, essentially they're from the Life in Australia panel, uh, which is called a probability-based panel. So people are recruited via um, uh, fixed-line phone uh, and mobile phones. They're asked to be on this panel. And then for those who are on the panel, they're then asked to, to fill in a survey essentially every month. Uh, the ANU uh, doesn't survey every month. So one month they might be doing a survey for us and then another month they might be doing it for another client or a commercial client. So they're asked a range of questions pretty repeatedly. So they're pretty sophisticated uh, respondent, but we have uh, young Australians, uh, so adults, uh, young Australians, older Australians, uh, remote, non-remote, born in Australia, not born in Australia. We have a pretty rich uh, distribution across the kind of the, the the categories which you would be interested in, uh, both from a policy perspective in terms of understanding people's outcomes, but also from kind of a a segment of the population to understand their views and. And their voting behaviours. And is there any danger in, or is there an increased risk, might be a better way of putting it, uh, that the group that we're talking to through this mechanism are more engaged than normal people, that, that by saying yes to, uh, to participating in the survey and to the prospect of participating in future surveys, that they are perhaps as a cohort fractionally more engaged than ordinary people? That's the first thing or that they become more engaged as a result of the participation process, almost like the uncertainty principle uh, where we're, you know, we're, we're trying to look at them and in looking at them we change them somehow. Yeah, no, that's certainly a real risk and there's a few ways we, we try and mitigate that. Uh, one is to have a, a reasonably frequent refresh of the panel. So those who've been in for a while, might get retired, and then and then new panelists are recruited. It's also a little bit different to some of the opt-in panels where people kind of 
search online to try and find surveys to participate or to give their views. These are people who are recruited. Uh, and we get some pretty, I wouldn't say disengaged, but some uh, people who are not overly enamored with the political process. Uh, so it's not those who are fo- just those who are following Twitter. It's also, we ask, you know, why did you change your vote? And, and we kind of have some open-ended responses and, and your people say, oh, because all, uh, all politicians are idiots or all politicians are corrupt or, uh, or, or I just didn't care. Uh, you know, you asked me in mm-hmm. April and, you know, I don't know, I just made up a number and then you asked me again and I made up a different number. So we get all, <laughs> uh, we get all, all types and, um, and we try and balance the panel and, and compare our results to external data to make sure that it's as close as possible. But you're right. So being asked about your intention in April makes you think about it maybe a little bit earlier than someone else might have. Uh, and we certainly do see in our data that there's, yeah, not a not an insignificant proportion of people who you know, made their their mind up, you know, really close to the election and and potentially being involved in surveys, even if it doesn't change your who you would vote for, it might change the strength with which you hold that view, or the or it might entrench certain views. So we do our best, and we also you know qualify things, and and you know this is just one sample, and and if we're getting drastically different results to someone else, then then we'll make sure that there's nothing kind of nothing biasing our conclusions uh and but the other thing i would say is that surveys like this uh, are only one part of the the story and and i think um you know qualitative data in-depth interviews uh with voters uh can really kind of flesh out the story which you get from from these um and your large-scale surveys I remember uh, Brian Lochnane uh, back in the days when he was federal director of the Liberal Party saying to me uh, one day in um, in Parliament House, uh, I think we must have been talking because of a poll that was out that day. I was at the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age at the time. And we probably had a poll out that day. And he said to me, you people are wasting your money asking people who would you vote for if an election were held this Saturday. It's 18 months to an election. It's completely hypothetical. I suppose I mean at the time I thought well there's there's definitely some validity in that in that point um of course in a democracy we are interested and it is a news story it is a matter of some fascination how a government is traveling how policies are being received what voters are thinking about where the government is at the moment uh, that is a matter of some interest but of course you know there's there's been some concern I suppose about just the the, the scale of polling, the role of them, the extent to which they may themselves become part of the um, of of the sort of political you know events that they may influence the outcomes as much as they reflect what is going on, and we've certainly seen a bit of that in terms of expectations in elections and and places where the polls have got it wrong and so forth. But it, yeah, it's a fascinating area, and there are always some there's always some level of uncertainty around these things. But this this poll, as you say, um, this survey series, a new poll particularly uh, looks to uh, get around some of those things with, uh, with, with the sheer scale of the people surveyed and, as you say, all of those other uh, things built into it, including the fact that you have people answering over a period of time and so that you can track those changes. Yeah, and just on, just on that, so one of the really interesting things is, is we can track how much uh, people's votes do change from 18 months out or six months out or, or one month out from the election. And if there was no information, uh, then you would expect that 
whether you've whether you said you're going to vote for the coalition in April should have no uh, bearing on whether you ended up voting for the coalition. And clearly, that's not the case. So we found that uh, only uh, 22% of people changed their votes between April 2022 and and May, uh, and, and then the election, uh, which is actually really similar to last election. Uh, so that was 21.5% who, who changed their votes. So it's certainly true that people do change and, and there is some fluctuation. And that's really interesting that what those fluctuations are in their directions. But I do think there is some information in in kind of asking people, uh, you know, out a month or or six months or twelve months out from from an election, especially if you're qualifying that, and if you're saying, well, okay, this is people's views now uh, in the current environment, doesn't mean that that's not who they're going to vote for, but it's yeah, it's not predictive. predictive. Yeah, it's it's a it's an indication rather than a determination. Uh, And and I think where we go wrong in Australia. It's not necessarily the number of polls which we do, uh, and certainly we're no worse than other countries. I think where we can go wrong is is the reliance of those polls as a forecast rather than a, a nowcast. And the timing of the poll is quite important. I actually found this. I was I was working with AES, the Australian Election Study data, and I actually found that um, Australians tend to have incredibly short-term memory, right? And um, by that, I mean what really affects us the most. And I did like a life cycle uh, and a generation and a period effect um, analysis. So looking into what impacts the vote the most. And, uh, and I found out that uh, the period, the effect of the period is, is uh, the most significant for Australians, and this is what makes the timing of the poll so important because the the campaign is incredibly important. So, what the leaders are signalling, how they're campaigning, things they are talking about, are they really tapping into issues that voters care about? And this time around, voters all across the board, right? So, uh, young voters, older voters, women, uh, um, all all voters were mostly concerned about the cost of living. That was one of the one of the biggest uh, issues that concerned voters, which also came up in the ANU uh, poll, right? And and this had a significant effect on coalition losing losing their voters or uh, or other parties um, or other um, independent or minor parties gaining votes away from the major parties. So really, the the timing of the poll is really important because people might change um, their vote close to the election, depending on the campaign. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, uh, yeah, you can you can track it, and you can learn. Therefore, uh, we can all learn. Therefore, uh, what uh, what what the effect of certain events, certain attempts to um, to portray information or portray the shortcomings of uh, of one's opponents in the political process, how those things actually played out. That's that's very interesting. And I I think you know when people criticise polls. Uh, and criticise news organisations for running them. It always strikes me as being a bit unrealistic. Of course, we are interested in a democracy in what people think, and we're not just interested in what the voters think about the government at the moment they vote for it. We're interested in in knowing that through the period. We don't want to have an election every week, but we but but of course, it's fascinating to know uh, whether uh, a political direction that's being taken. Uh, is uh, supported by people or not, whether the government's losing support or gaining support, um, whether certain issues that have come up have become front of mind for voters and they want to see their political leaders 
actually lead for a change on some of these things. Mm. Fascinating stuff. And, of course, we're going to want to look at it. Why don't we just take a quick break there because we're about halfway through. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, before I interrupted myself, uh, I was about to say, let's look at the hierarchy of issues. What what um, what were the main issues that voters were valuing in the in the sort of critical period leading up to this election? Uh, Nick, was it um, and 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 did it change? Was it different for different age groups? Yeah, so I might answer the first part, and then and then Inti's uh, looked in a fair bit of detail about how. Uh, how these issues vary across uh, different uh, population groups. Um, so we found in April that, uh, as Inti mentioned, cost of living, uh, reducing the cost of living was what voters saw as being a top priority for whatever the, the new government would be. Uh, what was really interesting is is the age care system, uh, fixing the age care system was the second highest priority. And, and that kind of reflects uh, not necessarily kind of a short term, but a a building realization, both leading into COVID, uh, but also during COVID, that the current aged care system is is not fit for purpose. Um, and that was reflected across across all age groups, wasn't it? That, yeah. That, so, I mean, yeah, aged care really, uh, even young people thought of thought of that. Yeah. As an so, issue. yeah, young people care about aged care as well. Yeah, I remember Inti and I having a bit of a chat about it. It was via emails. She was like, "Wow, you know, uh, um, is that right? You know, is is that the?" Are you sure that that's kind of the, the highest priority? Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's um, it's one of those things where, and if you think about it, it's not just uh, people who are worried about their own retirement or their own uh, when they uh, they need to kind of uh, increase the amount of care which they receive. It's it's people who've seen their grandparents' experience or or they've seen their parents uh, struggle with with caring for both them as children, but also a kind of elderly grandparent. Or they know, or they know, aged care workers in their family who are sure. who, who are yeah, working, exactly. you know, working themselves to deaths for low incomes and being doing, you know, doing extra shifts and you know, really living their work and not getting uh, much value attached to it by their uh, pay packet. Yeah, and I think what our data really shows, both uh, with this current election, but also um, over, in, in within election periods. Uh, is that sure people vote or, or express views which are 
you know, somewhat self-interested. So if you're at the top of the income distribution, you're probably rather lower taxes. If you're bottom, you're probably rather um, you know, increased uh, transfer payments. And that's true and, and that's been true for a number of years. But it's it's not that's it doesn't determine people's votes there's a lot of people who um have no exposure to uh, or no requirement to to be using the aged care system at the moment who see it as a priority there's a number of very wealthy people who who feel that you know taxes on the wealthy should be should be much higher and there's people who who maybe themselves and and even their children have have already been through the education system who see it as a as a, a need to uh, engage and, and fix the education system. So, you know, the aged care and, and generational views is, is an example of that, but there's plenty of other examples in our data. So the other thing we looked at, which I found, you know, really fascinating is, okay, so let's look at people who change their votes. Um, let's look at people who voted for the coalition in 2019 uh, but voted for another party uh, in 2022, what did they care about? And essentially, if you care about climate change, uh, then you're far more likely to have moved your vote away from the coalition. Uh, if you care about disaster relief, you're more likely to have, have deserted the coalition uh, and improving the, the way the political system works. Uh, and finally, uh, one which I was a little surprised by, but I think uh, is reflected maybe in the the some of the discussion post-election is that those who said that addressing issues around race in the country, if they saw that as a priority, they're more likely to have left the coalition. And to me, that's an indication of a some support for a, um, a more, uh, I guess, nuanced and productive debate around uh, uh, Indigenous voice in parliament and, and responding to the Uluru Statement of the Heart. So, to me, they're, they're the four, well, for our data, they're the four things which influence the change in vote um, and things which, uh, you know, kind of uh, kept people with the coalition were issues which didn't really feature in the election. So uh, terrorism, migration and trade, certainly uh, they haven't gone away, uh, but they weren't necessarily uh, front of mind amongst voters and and they're the... They're the issues which, as Inti said, timing are different. If, 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 if those issues became more salient, then maybe the election could have gone quite differently. Yeah. Inti? Yeah. And I, I also think very positively, I actually think that there has been a shift away from perhaps egocentric voting. And maybe this is, um, this is a bold statement that I'm making. But I do see across age groups this uh, this consciousness uh this compassion in in australian voters for 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 other for other groups or other people so as nick mentioned there were there were people uh older people with money who were concerned about you know what's going to happen to to my uh my kids or people who were worried older people as well um leading up to the election i realized in various panels talking to various uh people that uh, there were older people who cared about uh, climate change uh, more, more so than uh, previous elections, right? So I, I do, I do uh, tend to see a a compassion for for other age groups and other other groups in total. Coming back to your question about uh, what is the distribution of uh, policy priorities across um, age groups, so if we divide, so this is again using um, the ANU poll results that came out. 
Uh, and drawing on from the symposium as well, if we deb- divide the Australian electorate into three age groups, the youngest being 18 to 34 and the mid group being 35 to 54 and the oldest being 55 plus, young people mostly cared about reducing the cost of living. There's uh, dealing with global, uh, um, global climate change, improving the education system, not, not a surprise there. Reducing healthcare costs, obviously, after COVID, this is expected and also fixing the aged care system. And if you look into broadly, more broadly, then you will see that all Australians were concerned about reducing the cost of living, fixing the aged care system, as Nick mentioned, and also reducing healthcare costs, again, as expected after COVID. All across the board, there, there are Australians who think that, yes, people are suffering from the rising cost of living, inflation, so context period effect again, and also seeing that the aged care system is definitely not fit for that purpose. Um, this again comes back to, you know, people's lies. So uh, as you mentioned, Mark, that perhaps there is someone who is seeing, who has uh, parents or who has household member working in the aged care, aged care, uh, in an aged care facility. So really seeing the sufferings uh, or, or change of hours due to COVID, etc. So th- this comes back to the idea of lifestyle politics of how your life is being impacted by all these issues and how you're, you might reflect those uh, experiences of your life at the pole. So really there is a, there's a massive shift, as I see it, away from uh, towing along party lines to seeing, okay, what matters for me right now? or what matters for my parents, or what matters for, for people I care about, or the community even, and, and voting accordingly. Yeah, that issue of uh, that, that, that idea you raise, Inti, of compassion being an issue and of, of, of understanding the world beyond your immediate sort of self-interest, it's, a, it's an encouraging idea, and I think it, I, I like it, and I think it probably is right. I think we, and, and Nick was touching on this as well, we see a, a growing sense of concern for, um, uh, for climate change, not just in terms of its impact upon our lives, but in terms of you know, the broader impact on the globe, uh, the broader impact on the people who and the species who are affected by it most. We also see it perhaps in this aged care question in young people just I mean, we've talked about you know having having connection with the aged care sector itself one way or another, but but also perhaps just looking on your television news as mm-hmm. we did through those dark days of the lockdown, and seeing uh, elderly people behind glass. You know, sometimes family members were able to sort of you know wave mm-hmm. to them or whatever, because so many of these facilities were in lockdown themselves. You know, at, at, a, at and it was. It was horrendous. It was to think in a first world country that we were in a situation where these facilities were so badly run, in some cases so underfunded, mm-hmm. uh, so poorly equipped with uh, primary health care that the that the organised, you know, the the managers of them decided that the best way to to handle it was to you know effectively seal off the facility. This, I think, probably did touch a lot of a lot of people's sense of what is what is reasonable, you mm-hmm. know, just as at a human level. So I was going to say that um, that there's I think the pandemic in broad terms uh, opened people's eyes to uh, I guess aspects of society which they may not have seen beforehand. So aged care was one, uh, and and right early in the pandemic, uh, just well I guess midway through when kind of vaccines were an issue in Australia, we still found a very large proportion of people who said that uh, Australia should be prioritising uh, kind of vaccines in 
in in our neighbouring countries in the Pacific, but also uh, in developing countries. Yes. So uh, I think there's the experience uh, during COVID may have revealed things, and also I think it it did highlight to some people that that others are making sacrifices, uh, either in in kind of aged care workers in terms of what they're doing as a as a um, as a living, or uh, educators, or there's there's a range of or, or those in in kind of working even working in retail. Yeah, people doing deliveries, uh, of, you know. Yeah, it's a really you know, truck yeah. drivers and all kinds of. And things, yeah. and why I think this was possible is probably well not probably a hundred percent sure that it's because of of. Uh, information and exposure and uh, quick and easy information we are um, there is obviously living in australia we have the by the virtue of uh, advanced technology we we get to see as you mentioned mark right getting to see in the tv that people are suffering so i think exposure is a very big thing here as well getting to know about what what is happening in other people's lives so, and in that process sort of developing a sense of compassion for others. And during the pandemic, people were locked behind their computers mostly uh, and getting to, you know, seeing all these. And the media has a very big role here, right? Plays a very big role here, right? To disseminate all this information about what's happening to people, not just in your immediate community, but beyond as well, right? So I think... uh, Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we saw that we saw this in Britain, didn't we? With, I mean, you you remember Boris Johnson had his own uh, you know, brush with with mortality uh, when he had had COVID quite severely and was was basically on a ventilator, I think. And uh, he came out and talked about the NHS as the beating heart of Britain. Um, yes. They didn't fund it as well as they could, but um, but the the pop, you know, the general population uh, was uh, the support for the NHS in in Britain. Uh, just skyrocketed because people could see, as you as you say, into the the sort of coverage of of all of this aspects of services and the people working in those services that we largely take for granted or that which we only have occasional intersections with. Uh, we, we're getting covered, and we saw healthcare workers who were being pushed to the absolute limits, uh, who were who were gowned and you know, wearing PPE mm. in extraordinary circumstances, and and. And getting the infection themselves at a at a you know a higher rate than the general population because of that exposure, mm-hmm. um, and we saw that, and uh, it was a, it was a eye opening experience, and perhaps it it has unlocked a level of broader concern of a sense of the community because we did trust uh, trust which comes mm-hmm. up in in this ANU survey trust does uh, climb during this period uh, in in government in services uh, in our emergency. First responders and so forth. There's a there's a there's a bounce in it, and that you know that gradually ebbs away through the uh, the various underperformances with the vaccine and so forth. It, it really, I think, has given us a a new window into how some of these things are mediated, how we understand them, what our response is to them, and it's not all as some people would have us believe. It's not all about selfishness and what we can get out of it. It's 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 about being a member of a community. Absolutely, and it also it also reveals so many cracks in in, in not just the political system, but also healthcare system and also uh, aged care facilities, etc. And it, it kind of also probably makes accountability easier to uh, to hold uh, uh, political leaders accountable. Um, recent sort of comparative study of electoral um, systems, along with ANU poll, shows that. A lot of the voters uh, who thought about handling of the pandemic um, 
uh, also thought about how um well you can link that to the unpopularity of scott morrison so people who were not happy with scott morrison didn't like him as a leader was particularly because of how he handled the pandemic so really coalition lost quite a bit of vote there as well there is also a real risk of misinformation in all this right how the media is portraying yeah, um, yeah. all this information especially around covid but it, it is quite fascinating that this time around survey results show that australians don't believe social media as much uh, do not trust social media as much as you would have thought which is which also very wise which very also wise. kind of shows that uh, people are kind of there's there's digital literacy right as well so people know yes. where the information is coming from which ones to trust and which ones to not yeah nick um just going back to some of the issues one of the you you were talking before about some of the issues that were front of mind and the and the and some of those that i suppose you might call markers or surrogate markers of of intention to change votes also in there, I noticed that there were some of the issues that you know are always burbling around in, in Australian politics, um, but which really fell down the list in terms of their importance. The, the, the recent election campaign did not focus much on balancing the budget because that's an impossible. You know, it's impossible. I mean, we've got deficits as far as the eye can see, gross debt. You know, sort of nudging towards a trillion dollars. So it's that was off the table, but also things like uh, increased defence spending as an idea or national security. Uh, you mentioned terrorism before. Some of these things were, were sort of way down the list, weren't they? Yeah, so th- I think there's a, a few reasons for that. One is is just because of the the real salience of price increases as the, the election was taking place. But also I think that it's... I mean, if you think about the dynamics of the issue around budget deficits over the last, well, uh, for, for decades now, there, there's been a view that you know, a, a, the a coalition, conservative side of um, politics, they are better at balancing the budget uh, and that Labor is prefigured. And, and that has never really been that uh, well um, supported by the data, but it's really hard for uh, Scott Morrison and Frydenberg uh, leading into the election to argue that they're uh, un- that they're able to manage the the budget deficit, but Labor isn't. Given, as you said, that a budget came out not too long before the election, which showed these these really large deficits. But then on the flip side, uh, given that history, it's also hard, I think, for Labor to. It was hard for Labor to to. Focus on the budget deficit to 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 make that an issue themselves. So so there was a there was an interest for both parties to to kind of downplay that. What I was I was actually a little surprised uh, that the military uh, and defence and to a lesser extent terrorism uh, ranks so lowly, given the what was happening in in Ukraine and and still happening in Ukraine. Uh, leading up to and and during the election campaign, so I guess that's still far enough distant uh, geographically for Australians to to certainly recognise what's going on and recognise the importance of the Western Alliance and and others in in supporting uh, Ukraine, but not to see it as as something which is necessarily directly influencing. Them. And and I, and I suppose from a from a political sorry to interrupt, but I suppose from a sort of a political terrain point of view, these are, these are areas that have generally been strengths for the coalition. 
uh, or perceived as such, the kind of ground a coalition wants to fight an election on, such as you know fiscal rectitude, uh, uh, you know stronger commitment to to defence spending, uh, being tougher on national security issues, and in having you know having having the spine to do it and so forth. These are the kind of tropes that they uh, would like to have. Uh, current in an election, as you say, salient in an election, and when they aren't on the agenda, then it it it's tying the coalition one one of its hands behind its back a bit, and perhaps that also is therefore reflected in the issues that are to the fore and the result in the end. Yeah, and and certainly a a government who is in power has a greater capacity to shape the political discourse and what's happening or what's what's being discussed but it's not uh it it doesn't have a perfect ability no, i was going to say it's right up until it doesn't sure you know? <laughs> that's right and and we certainly saw that yeah that the people were asking repeatedly of uh, a former prime minister morrison and former treasurer joss feidenberg you know issues they're asking questions which weren't comfortable for the coalition to answer and there's there's certainly limits of that and, and government can still make an announcement and they can still choose the timing of the budget and they can there's certainly things they can do, but it's not absolute. Uh, and I think in certainly in this election, the issues got away from the government. The the issues which were salient were mm. cost of living, aged care, education, climate change, disaster relief. These are the things which people cared about. And these these were the things which the the former government didn't have a very convincing story to tell. Uh, now, Inti, I want to uh, want to come to uh, in a moment. Uh, just you know, Morrison and and Joyce uh, their their unpopularity. But before I do that, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'll get Nick to respond to this as well. But this is just about the overall survey approach. I'm wondering, do you think we should be surveying in these types of surveys? including in the survey group, 16-year-olds? I mean, if you think about 16-year-olds now, they're going to be voting at the next election. Uh, so do you think that's uh, a group that is percent. Oh, I think they should be because 16-year-olds today are so different from 16-year-olds even 20 years ago, right? They're, uh, they're more politically sophisticated. They are well-informed. They have more exposure to diverse sort of information, they're highly educated. So, if you look and track the education system across across um, um, across generations, then you will see that younger generations tend to be more educated compared to their counterparts in previous generations. So, they do have the tools and the resources to be able to make a, a, a an informed political judgment at uh, both at the polls and also uh, in opinion studies. So I think they are grossly really underpolled. They're they're yeah, it's it's very, very important. I don't know when this is gonna happen. I don't know how to convince people to make this happen, but yeah, it needs to happen. Yeah, interesting point. What about you, Nick? Yeah, look, so uh we're recording this on the the twenty eighth of June, which is <laughs> Census Day. Uh, it's um, uh, it is uh, Christmas for stats nerds. Uh, I think a few people refer to it as it. it only happens every five uh, years. And you're a stats nerd, aren't you? I am. I am indeed. And and one of the things which we did last census, we asked kids what they thought should be in the census, and the responses were fascinating. They said, "Well, why don't you ask us about you ask about how people travel to work? Why don't you ask about how people travel to school?" Mm. Uh, or 
you ask us about where we live, but do you ask whether there's playgrounds where we live? So I don't think it's just the interviews which are interesting. I think it's the extent to which the issues which are asked about, the extent to which they can be uh, influenced by uh, young Australians, you know, 16, 15, 14, 12, uh, however young mm-hmm. you want to go, because those issues, the issues which get raised are as important, I think, as the answers. Uh, and, and, there's way, and there are surveys and, and yeah, as an example, the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children has been tracking the views of, of children over a number of years and, and some uh, kind of uh, social attitude surveys do ask kids, but not enough and not enough um, uh, asking kids what they care about and then uh, using those to, to maybe ask adults, you know, ask adults, well, why, uh, why don't uh, you, you vote based on, on playgrounds or why don't you vote based on, on I don't know, the, the uh, bike paths in the area? I'm just making uh, kind of thing, things up based on, on the discussion we had previously. So, yeah, I think there is a real need to, that, to do that and, and to do it carefully and, and to manage privacy. And it's not to say that it's simple to, to interview kids or that there's not risks. But I think the those the benefits of doing so far outweigh. Oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And and at the moment, I'm working at a um, with a longitudinal um, survey, which is called the Post School Destination Survey, where mostly we really want to look at fifteen uh, year olds, track them for the next ten years, and and see how their attitudes and and behaviors change. Mostly in terms of um, their educational aspirations, their career aspirations, but also how things like COVID impacted um, impacted their lives and personal relationships, political attitudes, and um, civic participation as well. So I think more of these surveys are definitely necessary. As Nick mentioned, there is a real risk of going to fifteen or sixteen year olds and asking them about all these issues, but definitely the the benefits outweigh the risks. Yeah, that's right. There may be some ethical considerations there, uh, but uh, it's an interesting field. I mean, the the Greens at at one point, at least, I think, have advocated that sixteen year olds should have the vote. Do you, do you think that is isn't is something that should be considered? Given that at sixteen years old, you can do a lot of yeah, other you things. Yeah, you, um, you can acquire a driver, including car. drive. Yeah, a car. you can drive a car. You can yeah. consent. Uh, then why not why not vote because voting voting is a right right to be able to to be able to have a say at the rules that impact your lives directly i think it's important uh to engage engage young people also in terms of like youth engagement because voting is a habit that you develop and the, the earlier you're exposed to this institution the better it is for for voters and also for for democracy what about the concept of making it? I've thought about this a bit, and not not in a particularly methodological way. I might say, just sort of mused on it. But what about the possibilities like making it non-compulsory for sixteen-year-olds? Only becomes compulsory when it's eighteen, uh, or perhaps, um, uh, or perhaps uh, some sort of civic certificate where you've, um, uh, you've you've it's like a provisional voting license where you you're able to vote, but you have to have uh, satisfied some you know, but some level of uh, instructional course on essentially, you know, what the institutions are and the major parties represent or whatever it is? Mm. Yeah, I think, well, two things. I am a staunch supporter of compulsory voting and I, I do. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, in, in Australia, 
you do know that in other parts, other advanced democracies, similar to Australia, there is a real problem of young people disengaging from the whole institution of voting, right? And um, and this is a bit, very big problem, which we don't see. There's no evidence for it in Australia. The younger voters and younger generations are quite comparable when it comes to their engagement at the polls. So, um, and I, I believe that it's because of the political culture instilled in by compulsory voting. But there also is a real need of, as you kind of lightly touch upon, of, of civic and political education, which perhaps could be uh, facilitated by uh, educational institutions like schools in order to help young people to get some sort of um, like a certificate of understanding of how politics works in, in, in the parliament, etc., before they can make an informed judgment about voting. So what is really necessary is not making voting non-compulsory, but really helping young people to make that informed judgment. I would still stick with, with, with compulsory voting. If you oh yeah, me. don't worry. I wasn't suggesting that we dilute that in any mm. way. I was more just suggesting that uh, for those who want to engage, seems to me, uh, uh, seems to me a shame in some ways. Some many sixteen-year-olds and seventeen-year-olds uh, are more engaged, more Absolutely. informed about the issues than a good many voters who voted twenty times in their lives. You know, who and, and who take no real interest in it. Uh, you know, as Nick was saying before, there are some people who don't take any interest yeah. in it and uh, who, who sort of go along and do it. So the idea that a sixteen, an engaged sixteen-year-old is it lacks the competence to, uh, to to participate, and they have a bigger stake in in society anyway. When you think about that, likely that they're going to be around for a lot longer, it matters to them more. So yeah, there's 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 a lot of good reasons why it ought to be considered, and you can understand why perhaps on the conservative side they're a bit a bit unenthusiastic about this because there's probably going to be a proclivity toward the left in in that. Uh, in that uh, Un- unused part of the electorate. But uh, anyway, look, we're, we're running short of time. I just want to get to one final question if I can, and that is something I mentioned in the intro, and, and that is the the unpopularity of Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce. We had Ed Coper on the program last week talking about the Teal campaigns and the digital messaging there, and one of the things he said was that, you know, a vote for Dave Sharma or a vote for Josh Frydenberg is a vote for Barnaby Joyce. That They thought that would be the most potent sort of critical message to get to voters, but they found that, in fact, saying that a vote for Josh Frydenberg was actually a vote for Scott Morrison tracked even worse. It was even more toxic. And uh, I I don't think the general polls had showed up that level of uh, antipathy in the electorate, Nick. You know, we we saw, we we see better PM ratings and approval, disapproval ratings and so forth, but they didn't show the level of negativity around the Prime Minister. There was certainly plenty of discourse around it, you know, in terms of uh, the things that have been said by colleagues and, and, and so forth. But what did the survey show up about about uh, Scott Morrison's unpopularity? Yeah, so look, I think there was certainly hints pre-election that uh, Scott Morrison was was not a, not having a positive influence on the, the coalition vote. But I think there was a, an assumption that, well, he's a great campaigner. Uh, he'll turn it around, uh, and that I'm sure leading up to the election, uh, Morrison was a bit on the nose. But you know, the, the, there was this view that it was going to turn around, but he didn't. Uh, and certainly, our data um, showed that going back to to 1987, uh, that Scott Morrison was the least popular Liberal leader 
Barnaby Joyce was the the least popular uh, kind of nationals leader. So does that uh, mean Albanese, among? Sorry to interrupt you, but does that mean among people who vote for that? Side? So both, yes. So so that was what was really fascinating, and and Professor Ian McAllister from uh, who collaborated with us on the symposium. Uh, the point he made was that okay, you kind of expect that Morrison's not going to be popular amongst uh, Labor voters or or Barnaby Joyce. Uh, but what, what he found in his analysis in the data is that even amongst uh, coalition voters, even those who kind of held their nose and voted for the coalition, or those who, who may have uh, indicated a long-term kind of affiliation with, uh, with the coalition, even amongst that group, uh, Morrison was, was deeply unpopular. And, and you saw that. I mean, there's kind of, I mean, I, you mentioned the start, I'm trained as an economist, and we like to use the term kind of revealed preference. Uh, Scott Morrison's revealed preference was not to campaign in, in a number of electorates. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't go to, to, the, to the marginal seats where Or to the safe, to those blue ribbon mm-hmm. seats. Uh, you know, exactly, yeah. sure. Yeah, the ones which ended up uh, are switching. Mm. And, and so I think the, the parties, Morrison was not able to turn that around and, and so when you kind of uh, ask the question right at the start, was this a uh, a long term shift or or a short term shift? What we'll see is is whether with a new uh, leader of of the coalition, and, and it might be uh, uh, Peter Dutton going into the next election, or it might be someone else. Uh, whether it it was just a Morrison issue, or whether it was something more structural and fundamental about the the political parties and 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 how people view the issues and, and how people view the parties with response to those issues. It's been absolutely terrific having both of you on to discuss all of these issues. There's so much. We've only really scratched the surface of uh, this survey data. As Nick said, you can access it uh, and uh, and have a look at your own, and there are some academic papers that have already been written and there will be more that are coming. Uh, so there's plenty of analysis to go, and it, it is such a fascinating election. We haven't even seen Parliament sit yet. We know there's already friction between the government and the uh, and the crossbench over resourcing, number of staff, and so forth. We'll see where that goes. It's just going to be a really interesting period, and and as I say, we'll learn some way down the track whether some of these things signal a a hinge point where politics was forever different after the 2022 election, or whether there's some sort of you know, track back towards the orthodoxy as we've been used to. All of these things are very much in flux at the moment. Nick Biddle and Intifar Chowdhury, I always butcher your name, I'm sorry, Chowdhury. Um, thank you so much for being on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Thanks for having us on. And Inti, you can probably tell me right now, how do you pronounce your it's name? Chowdhury. So I can get it right next time. Yes, Chowdhury, there you go. Right. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. Yes. <laughs> At least you, you, <laughs> Very you pronounce my first name all right. You have no idea how people put my first name, which is <laughs> is always a surprise to me, right? Because it's yes, very phonetic. It it's a very phonetic first right name, like. <laughs> it does, and and as you say on the as as you say, Nick, on this um, day when the census data comes out, and we find that uh, the multicultural Australia, the the number of people who have a parent born overseas, the number of people who have a foreign or a different other than English language spoken in their home, has increased dramatically. So mm. yes, anyway, that's that's democracy sausage for now. So thanks very much. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.